Hi there. Welcome to the Jewelry Navigator podcast, an on-the-go source of original and unique jewelry with stories of the designers who create it. My name is Brenna Pakes. I'm a graduate gemologist with a degree in geology. I've worked in the retail sector for over 15 years. After completing my graduate gemology diploma and working in the industry for a little while, I took an intermittent career break and worked for a major airline. That's why I combine the theme of aviation and the concept of navigating shoppers to choices of unique jewelry, as well as understanding gem selection and jewelry construction, as well as metal choices. I do a coordinating blog post for every podcast showing photos of the jewelry that we're talking about, as well as links to the jewelers and more information about them. So I hope you enjoy the episodes and feel free to subscribe for your Jewelry Navigator Passport, a way to stay up to date with the current episodes and upcoming features. Thanks so much for joining us and enjoy the episode. Hey there, and welcome back to Jewelry Navigator Podcast. This week on the podcast, I am so excited because it's a little bit different and a unique story in that my guest has an established gem and jewelry store, as well as a successful online gemstone and jewelry business. And if you've heard some of my past episodes, you'll understand I'm a fanatic about colored gemstones. So if you are too, or want to learn more, you're in good company today. Listen in. Steve Moriarty is an accomplished gemstone cutter and jeweler in Crown Point, Indiana, which is about an hour southeast of Chicago. His story begins with early childhood memories of collecting rocks in his wagon near the railroad tracks close to his home. His interest and passion in rocks and gems continued into college when he took jewelry arts classes at Ball State University, then joined his older brother in a small gemstone importing business serving fine jewelry stores in the Midwest. He's a generous source of gemstone and faceting information, sharing his expertise on their YouTube channel, More Gems. Steve's gemstone and jewelry legacy will continue as his family joined him in their business with custom jewelry design, repair, fabrication, marketing, and online services. I loved hearing his adventures in discovering the gem rough he takes home to facet into the exceptional gemstones, which you can find on their websites, moregems.com and tanzanitejewelry.com. Thanks so much for joining me and enjoy the episode. I read your bio and a little bit of your history. Tell me a little bit more about how you got involved in geology and gemstones. Well, it, of course, started when I was a kid, you know, just liking rocks. And, you know, I'd take my wagon down to the railroad tracks at the end of the street and walk the tracks and pick up anything that was pretty. Mostly it was red flint, but... Um, but it excited me. You know, then I went to school. I went to Ball State University, and they had a jewelry arts classes there. Uh, and at the time, my brother was importing stones from India. He just started doing that. He'd worked at a retail store, and then he started importing, and he'd send those down to me at school, and I'd take them in and try and sell them to the jewelry arts class. But, you know, that was difficult, because if they were more than five bucks, they didn't have the money for it. But it was kind of my introduction into selling 
colored stones. Okay. All right. And um, and school actually understood me better than I did because, you know, they recommended that I stay in earth sciences because I did pretty well in earth sciences. They wrote a letter home to me to stay in it. Of course, I ignored it, couldn't see what the hell I'd do with earth sciences. So I became a chemist and went to work for Simmons Company as a chemist. And that lasted about a year before I decided it wasn't for me. And then I went back with my brother and we started selling to uh, jewelers uh, around the Midwest, selling colored stones and mountings. Okay. And would your brother go to the sources like what you're doing now or were they imported? Well, after we split up, I took him on his first trip to Bangkok. Ah, <laughs> so okay. People, yeah, he was just importing and buying in New York City from uh, a couple of big dealers. And, you know, I think uh, he probably did go to Eder Oberstein because Eder Oberstein was the big cutting center back in the 70s and 80s. You know, mm-hmm. they were producing the fine stones and um, so that was the primary sources that we had then, India and Germany. Right. I remember I remember hearing that in GIA classes a lot was Edar Oberstein. You don't hear about it too much anymore, but I, I think they're still pretty masterful with like the really, uh, like the gemstone carving. Yep. Yep. Like Moonsteiner. You know, yes. Uh, yeah, they're, they're they're great cutters. But, you know, it, in I, I was traveling there in the early 80s, and it didn't take me long to figure out that a lot of the stones I was buying from them were being done in Bangkok. So I could go in there and, and started going to Bangkok instead. Because it's okay. cheap. They're over yes. time. They were expensive, and, you know, Bangkok was probably half the price. So, so that's where their business kind of went went to Bangkok and now China, of course, and India. So, mm-hmm. But they're, they're masterful cutters, but they're going to be the most expensive cutters on the planet. I always right. wondered why I didn't go back to Germany to sell, because the prices they got for stones in Germany were just crazy. You know, I, you know, I was thinking 40 bucks a carat for amethyst back in the 80s, you know, and, and you know, it was, you know, buy it in Bangkok for three bucks a carat or something, you know. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, but but yeah. there's nobody, well, I won't say there's nobody better. The cutters in the U.S. are really doing the kind of work that the cutters in Germany uh, have been doing for a long time. You know, the, there's a lot of new cutters coming up in the U.S. It's a really developing industry, and um, we really do cut here as well as anybody in the world, probably better than most people in the world. Nice. So where can people go to learn how to facet here in the States? Uh, well, there's not many. I know I know, uh, I know a few people that have, Dolan Hargrave used to teach. I, I think he quit. He's he's amazing. Look him up. He's, he's, I know who he Har- is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's pretty amazing. So he used to teach. If he teaches again, I'd just go out there and see what I can learn from him. Because mm-hmm. uh, he does the concave faceting and... Um, he's just really, really talented. You know, I sometimes think I'm a good cutter until I look at what he does. And, you know, he's he's pretty amazing. But but there's there's not much there's not many places to learn cutting. That's why I produced all the cutting videos. I don't know if you saw those, but we have a whole series on how to cut, and I just go through from start to finish. And 
because there is no good cutting school. I won't say there's no good cutting schools. There's not many. And most of the cutters that want to learn, you know, they want something that's an hour away or, you know, not have to travel and stay in a hotel. So that's why we started producing the cutting videos. Oh, that's really interesting. I had seen, I looked mostly at the, um, I watched the Tanzanite one and then I watched the, the opal that fluoresces, that glows. Right, Um, right watch that video but i'll have to go back i didn't realize that you did instructional videos that's really cool there's one whole series maybe eight videos um i forget what it's called uh how to cut gemstones or something you know and a lot of people are doing it now when when we started that you know ours was one of the few out there but a lot of people are are starting to produce some videos on cutting i i haven't watched them but um you know it's something that felt it was a service you know a lot of people ask me if where to learn to cut and I didn't know where to tell them so you know I wish I had the videos that we put out when I started cutting because I would have known that the first year I was cutting that there was something wrong with my machine <laughs> it wasn't me the machine was bad oh you know, but really I I've never used the machine before and I had a machine that was so out of whack that I had to cheat everything, which means you have to adjust the machine for every facet, um, which was a great learning lesson because I'm now the greatest cheater on the planet because <laughs> I, <laughs> I did it for a year, forced to, because my machine was out of whack. So. Oh. oh, that's really unfortunate. That stinks. So how long? Because now I can have to repair a facet and I put it in the machine and more often than not it's right where it was supposed to be just by looking at it so uh-huh. that's something I learned that you know just because of a bad machine so I'm thankful for it but at the time it was a bit frustrating I bet yeah so that's really interesting so anybody listening if you're curious and you want to get involved in a gemstone faceting Definitely go visit Moriarty Gem Arts. It's on YouTube under moregems.com. Okay, perfect. Yeah, I'll be sure to include that in the um, blog post and the show notes. So, yeah, thank you for that. What would you say some of the most valuable lessons you learned when you were on the road traveling and buying gemstones and bringing them back to the States? Well, my time on the road, which was 20 years, um, and I wholesaled to some of the finest jewelers in the Midwest. Um, The thing that I learned from that mostly was how to design jewelry because I just carried loose stones and had a a line of mountings uh, from a manufacturer in New York that could pretty much produce for any size or shape, just custom jewelers. And, you know, that was, the greatest thing I learned was really how to put stones together, you know, what, what will fit in a ring and look right and uh, what has to go in a pendant because it's deep or, you know, all those lessons that cut them designing and, and making mistakes. And, you know, so for 20 years, that's all I did was put jewelry together. So it really worked out well once I became a jeweler and or had my own jewelry store. So I already knew how to, how to put everything together. Yeah. Yeah, those those are really valuable nuances that you don't necessarily know 
right away until you start working with settings and gemstones and understanding the general way that colored gemstones work because isn't it the case with most color in order for it to be saturated enough some of them need to be deeper for sure yeah yes, and most interesting cuts like portuguese rounds which i saw a lot of they're very deep cuts i mean they're 80 90 percent depth so you know, it it's, makes it a challenge. You can't just buy parts from Stellar and expect to put it together. And, but you do have to custom make a lot of stuff. And, you know, in a ring, some of these deep stones, you know, they're questionable. So you put them in pendants. Right. Yeah, exactly. So what are some of your favorite gemstones, like, over the years? What what did you discover that you really, really like? Well, that's a long list. <laughs> but number one, number one is tanzanite for sure. Okay. I mean, not only is it half of my entire business, it's just an exciting stone. I mean, I've never had a stone that women would buy five rings. You know, I had a woman that had five rings, and I, that's exactly what I thought. I said, well, you have five rings. You know, I said, oh, I probably don't need one. She looked at another ring and bought another ring. You know, who does that one stuff, you know, and, and that's many, many women have multiples in tanzanite. I just don't see it in any other stone. But the other favorite is probably Malaya Garnet is always been oh, my yeah. favorite. It's that peach color. You know, there's a lot of Malayas that are sold out there that are just reddish or reddish brown. But that peach color that looks like Imperial Topaz, for sure, my favorite stone. Yeah. Um and and that opal, you know, that opal was exciting, you know, that uh, the uh, the one that uh, daylight fluoresces. Yeah, that's something totally different. That you know, we just got into that just a few years ago, and you know, we were we were headed out to Tucson, and with my two sons, Jeff and Michael, and they had put the video up we made of that the day before. We got out there, and they looked, and they said, it's got a million views in one day. It had a million views, you know, which, which just is, I, I didn't believe it, you know, but it, it hit Reddit, and it just went viral, and, and so that was, that was a pretty exciting stuff, you know, and it, it is unique because it daylight fluoresces, and there's almost nothing that daylight fluoresces, you know, mm-hmm. so many stuff. Or S under long wave UV or short wave, but for a stone to to go from virtually colorless, you take it outside and it just fluoresces green. You know, kind of a cool thing. It is really cool. I did see how that. Uh, I've never seen one before. So it is. A, is it a fairly rare variety of opal? Yeah, they found it in 2014, and it was gone by 2016. Oh my gosh. So, so very short production. If you look at the the way it's mined, it's like a hill, and it ran across the hill in one level, and they just took the hill down to the level, and it was gone. So, wow, you know, just all hill in Zacatecas, Mexico, and and uh, for as far as we know, there is no more on the planet. That's really interesting. So, where did that gemstone end up? Do you still have it? No, that one went. To Hong Kong, I believe. Um, other stones, you know, we we've been sunstone mining recently, and sunstone's been fun. But um, I hate cutting it, but uh, it's produced some cool stones. But, uh, 
Why do you hate cutting it? Um, it's hard to get the color right. Oh. You know, you got yeah, you got to, it doesn't react like other stones um, do, and it's been a tough learning lesson, and I think I've figured it out now, but you got to get rid of 90% of the material you start with to get the stone right, so. Oh, okay. I do, yeah. Um, so you have to be really familiar with the uh, crystallography of the gems and the crystals, don't you? You bet. Yeah, once you cut twenty of them, maybe you figured out. But you know, but you you still make mistakes after that. But yeah, you got to cut some to cut quite a few to to get to figure it out. And you know what I see people cutting in sunstones are the things that most of it looks like the things I'm unhappy with. Yeah, you know, because there is clear zones. You know, my expectations and and my expectations of stones and what people are buying these days is kind of changing too. You know, mm-hmm. I see the colors selling that I just don't get, you know, like the gray spinels that everybody's raving about. And um, I don't quite understand that, but I'm going with the flow and assuming I don't know everything. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's just a kind of changing market. And, you know, the younger people are into things that, you know, I, I sometimes don't understand, but. I realize I don't understand it, so I'm assuming I'm wrong. It's like very, like Morganites, you know, sometimes they're so light and, you know, I'll show them the girls and they'll just go, oh, yeah, that's beautiful. And so, you know, to me, it's too light, but, you know, it's just one of those things that it's a changing market and, you know, just got to try and figure it out. Mm-hmm. Right. What should people look for? Can you educate us a little bit on what people should look for when shopping for a gemstone piece of jewelry? Well, as I was just talking about, you know, the the color is just whatever makes you happy. You know, you don't have to listen to what I say is the best color. You know, that's you just really need to satisfy yourself. But Cutting is really what they should be looking at because that's what's abused around the world. I mean, the quality of cutting um, for all my time in business has generally been very poor uh, just because they're trying to maximize weight. Um, And it's still to this day from India and China, you know, although many, many of the cutters are getting better, there's still a high percentage of the goods that are just very poorly cut. They're cut with windows in them, and that's the first indication that it's not right is when you can look right through it and, and see what's behind the stone rather than seeing reflections all the way through the stone. So that's a big key. You know, some window is sometimes okay, um, but being without window, I don't know if people understand window, I guess. It's just it's just full reflection of the stone all the way down to the cubit is still reflecting light back to you, and that's a properly cut stone. So that's really what they should be looking at, the quality of the cutting, and, you know, just look at the color. If the color satisfies you and the cut's right, you know, and then maybe the, the stone's right then. For diamonds, the more precise the stone is faceted, the better the light return. And, of course, that's what we always want is the light to go in, bounce around, and then refract and reflect out. So when Steve is explaining a window, he means a window all the way through to the bottom of the stone, which is not what you want. You want something that 
reflects the colors back to you. Is that and, right? And, yeah, and sometimes you look at windows in their most dramatic cases, you know, two-thirds of the bottom of the stone, you can hold it over a, a written page and you can read through it. Yeah. You know, that's what all about meaning you just see right through it there's no reflection back mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but that's good. the biggest most common problem in in uh, in the business is in in other than that it's polish you know they even most of the people i deal with in tanzania and india the quality of their polish just is not there i mean there's lines in them they they didn't take the time to finish the polish they took it so far and then just said up oh, that's okay and you know, I, I I don't understand it. It's just put a little more effort into it, and you can get a better polish. But um, it's it's not the mentality. You know, it's either a time issue or a weight retention issue that that forces these uh, foreign cutters to just produce a an inferior stone. Mm-hmm. And I and I I have to say that the quality from overseas has gotten dramatically better, but in general still lacking. So if people are looking for a quality colored stone piece of jewelry, they really need to pay attention to the cut and therefore really brings us back to educating yourself on where to find those stones and who to get them from. And so that's one reason why you and I are visiting together. I want to go back and have you explain to everybody what polish is. So, yeah, polish is getting a facet that's very flat and then... You know, when when you cut, I cut with diamond, I polish with diamond, and diamond is producing a scratch. Mm-hmm. And when you begin and use a coarse uh, cutting wheel, it's leaving lines across the stone. So your next step is produce finer lines, and then finally in your final polish, you're producing no lines. You can't see the lines. Um you know, the, the two things you'll see in a poorly polished stone are little divots, which means they didn't polish long enough to go deep enough to go through that. And that those divots come from the coarse laps pulling chips out of the stone. And oh. you've got to polish long enough to get through those chips. Um, or you'll see lines in the stone. And this typically is from... Uh, the cutting wheels that they're using, you know, I know they're expensive. You know, some of these wheels are $700 mm-hmm. for a cutting wheel. And, you know, overseas they can't afford it. They don't have the equipment to refinish them well. And, you know, what you're cutting on has to be very flat, no grooves in it, uh, if you want to produce a high-quality finish. And so many of the stones from overseas you'll see lines in the stone and, and that's actually coming from the wheel itself or what's called uh, aggregation and flow which is too much polishing compound and it accumulates and just produces a scratch across the stone so a lot okay. of people just go well that's good enough and you know they won't see it and you know that's that's the mentality um you know i've been at this for two hours and that's enough time into it. I, I don't know what their mentality is, but it's just that right. I mean, that polish is the most important thing. You know, people talk to me and they, they look at a stone and they say, well, your meats aren't perfect. 
you know, it, it is much more important to get a good polish than good meats. Meats mean that all the facets meet in, in one spot wherever they meet. But if you want to get perfect in some stones, like cutting appetite, I cut appetite, and that's a stone you have to accept the imperfect polish because it just doesn't polish perfectly. But to get meats right and get polish right, you can't always get both just because the nature of colored stones, they just don't polish easily. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. Now, um, apatite is a relatively soft stone compared to a lot of the other gemstones. Is that one reason why it's a little bit more difficult to work with? You know, and softness I don't think is the real reason. There's some other factor involved. You know, I've got a lot of soft stones and some of them just no problem polishing but appetite's a nightmare, and, and most people won't touch it. Um, mm. But uh, if you, you know, once you get the technique down and your laps are perfectly clean and you clean them and ultrasonic them and get them perfectly clean on a fresh lap, you can almost get a perfect polish. But it's one stone, you never get a perfect polish. Right? Uh-huh, yeah. At least I can't. I don't know anybody that can, but but I don't think it's based on the hardness because I could do an opal which has the same hardness and and get a perfect polish on them. So it's it's not the the issue of hardness. Okay, it's just that appetite. It's just is <laughs> difficult. Yeah. Yep. It's pretty. It's pretty color. I think probably makes up for it though. Yeah, it is a beautiful color. You know mm-hmm. and. and I've got out of Madagascar, which hasn't been produced for probably 10 years, just some really large, extraordinary colors. And, you know, it's, uh, I have quite a bit in my safe, and I don't want to cut it. (laughs) (laughs) Save it for a rainy day. Yeah, you have to twist my arm to sit down. Um, Is is the appetite that you're talking about, is it that bluish green or that greenish blue color? Yeah, you know, and there were two sources in Madagascar. One was uh, down near Alakaka, which was a smaller, more green, I guess. Um, the bigger material came from up north, and you know, I've got stones that'll cut fifty carat. Um, you know, there was interesting time, and uh, I forget where I was. It was probably Tucson, and this, this uh, the guy that mines it. I think his name's Daniel. And he came, he was in Tucson, and he had his room full of it. I mean, he had, he, he mined 300 kilos of the material. This is probably 25 years ago. And he, I was in his room, and he says, well, let's go to lunch. You know, and he closes up the room. I said, you're going to leave this? You know, this is, even though it's only $20 a gram, 300 kilos, I mean, it was like a quarter million. Yeah. But you don't leave your room I know to you it's just a rock, but it's <laughs> a lot of money, you know. So it, it's it was it's not something I'd ever do. I mean, his bed was covered with it. It was just everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> but since then, there's been none. You know, I wish I had more money at the time to buy more. You know, I'd sell it as rough, not cut it. But, okay. You know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this past year was the first time that I ever went to Tucson. It was amazing. It is. I've been going since '81. Oh wow! So you're Started probably... going there in '81 and showed till 2001. 
Okay. So now do you just go for fun? I just go for fun. It's a lot okay. more fun being a I, 12 days in a booth is too much. Oh, yeah. Um, but it, it was amazing. Wonderful. And yeah. when you said when you said he had uh, appetite on his bed, for those of you who are listening, Tucson, <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'm like, people are going to think, what the heck is he talking about? He had appetite on his bed? <laughs> Tucson completely converts into a big giant gem jewelry and mineral show like the whole town including hotels yes so hotel rooms yeah are converted to uh showrooms to booths and and such for these different vendors and gem dealers that's what they do the hotels open up to the vendors and the gemstone dealers so that's what steve is talking about well, since you were mentioning uh, Madagascar, let's talk about some of your excursions to Tanzania because I know you're getting ready to take one this fall. And since the general public has become more interested in understanding and learning more about where gemstones come from and being able to verify the source of the gemstone, let's have you share some of your your insights and experiences traveling to Tanzania and how that works going into it and do you go down into the mines tell us some stories about that well fortunately i have a friend that has a mine in 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 the tanzanite mining area so it does get me into the mining area which most people can't go i mean you have to have permission or know somebody and he has a mine, so we go to his mine and yeah we've got a good video online of us going down in the mine um which was probably 2014 that we did that and unfortunately he wasn't finding anything at the time so it was just going down in a hole basically but it's still exciting but had no success and he's actually hasn't had success for three years now or maybe four years so he's struggling with the mining but uh, we'll see what goes on this trip and we'll go back out to the mines if we're allowed because you know, the, the Tanzanian government has built a, about a 12-foot wall all the way around the Tanzanite mines, and it's 24 kilometers long. So they're restricting access. They're trying to stop the illegal export of, of Tanzanite, which has been most of the Tanzanite has been illegally exported. It's, you know, taken out of the mines and then carried across into Kenya, and Kenya probably has a higher... Um, quantity of export of Tanzanite than Tanzania does because Mm -hmm. of all the illegal exports. So that's what they're attempting to stop. And and I'm not sure whether I'll be able to work in the mining area because we used to just go sit at where they eat and uh, buy water and just wait for them to come. And, you know, the miners, uh, many of them are paid in stones and we'd buy stones from them, just sit in the car and they'd pass stones through the window and and uh, you make your deal right there. So that was that was fun for a couple of days. And you know, and we'd also go to Marilani, which is the town where most of the miners live. And uh, there was always goods available there. But I think that's probably over now because friends have told me that the government is looking into that. They got spies everywhere, and you know, you can't buy except from uh, from licensed dealers. So. But fortunately, okay. my friend is a licensed dealer, and 
So hopefully we'll be able to deal in the mining area there. Okay. Uh, well, lucky for you, that'll be that'll be nice. I hope you bring some some nice goods home to facet some more tanzanite. Yeah, me too. And then they opened up uh, the size of material you can export now. It used to be just up to one gram, which would cut a carrot, carrot and a half stone. But now you can export up to two gram pieces of tanzanite rough. <clears throat> so from that, you can get anywhere up to a four carat stone. So that gets you into the real meat of the market. You know, that's the three, two, three, four carat stones are really where the primary business is. And now we can export that rough legally. So would you say, you mentioned earlier that Tanzanite is one of your biggest part of your business. Is that the majority of your colored stones? Well, you know, my business is mostly color. We do a lot of engagement, but um, probably 80% of my business is color and 40% of that, of my whole business is Tanzanite. So, you know, and it's a lot to do with the online business. Um, you know, my sons have set that up well, and they've marketed it. Uh, Jeff does most of the setup of the sites, and and Michael does a lot of the the marketing. Um, so that's just been a real good part of the business. And Tanzanite sells online. Other stones I've had difficulty with so far. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it's because I'm much more competitive with Tanzanite. I've been working all day on making my other stones more competitive and see if I can get that, that market moving. But the Tanzanite market online has been really good, and you know, and that's what I'm focusing on. And if Tanzanite became my entire business, I'd be happy with that. Mm-hmm. Although you- my wife and son say, put all your eggs in one basket, and particularly with Tanzanite, because you don't know if it's going to be gone. You don't know if the government's going to step in and, and cut you out of the market or, you know. So so part of the purpose of this trip to Tanzania is to see if I can set up a cutting shop over there, see if that's even feasible, just okay. so involved directly in case the government says no more exports are rough. You know, um, much of my stones comes from India currently. Um, if they get cut out, then I have to have the resources there in Tanzania to to uh, to get the goods if the government decides that's what they want to do. You know, and that's been their purpose with the wall is to try and keep the cutting in the country, keep the people employed in that business. And I fully understand that. Um, but right now, there's not enough good cutters there to to cut the material that's available. That's why probably 90% of it goes to India. Okay. Okay. I see what you're saying. So the, the gem rough goes to India to be cut. Okay. Yes. What should we move to next? Um, How about new stones in the market? Yes. Let's talk about that. Okay. Um, Morganite, uh, Ethiopia. Ethiopia okay. is become a really amazing country and when I scheduled this trip to Tanzania I'm going oh should I should have gone to Ethiopia you know because I do a lot of opal opal is probably my second biggest stone next to Tanzanite uh-huh. and I've been cut Ethiopian opal since 2012 and uh, you know something that recently you know about a year ago I bought a piece of crystal opal from there and I've cut many crystal opals and they've all been failures 
uh, because they craze. They just crack up completely. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I bought one last year, and my supplier said, I will guarantee you this one won't crack. I go, right. Heard that before. You know, but uh, got it home. I let it set for a couple of months and, and sat down and cut it. And that is one of the videos that's online. Came out amazing. You know, mm-hmm. just the, the most spectacular opals I've ever cut. You know, so it's a faceted opal that's clear and has brilliance and then still has play of color in it. So okay. Ethiopia has been so many stones. I mean, sapphire, emeralds. I've cut. I've only cut two emeralds because I bought them from my opal dealers and they just had them as a sideline, but totally natural. No treatment whatsoever. Beautiful color, clean stones. Um, so the emeralds they produced, which I understand is maybe gone or controlled by bigger companies now, um, but but that was unique. And then they produced sapphire and um, now I'm seeing aqua from there. Nothing great yet. Heliodor, uh, and the Morganites. The Morganites are cut nice. They're, you know, I'd like them a little more saturation, but they're really beautiful stones, big stones, clean stones, mm-hmm. uh, and all natural, you know, no treatment, which most of the Morganite on the market's been irradiated. All the stuff from Mozambique is irradiated material. So these are natural color, and, and uh, you know, so that's kind of unique for them. So it's turning out... Uh, There'd be a lot of new stones coming out of there. You know, they started making money in the gemstone industry, and I think they're looking everywhere for it. And so I expect to see more unique and beautiful things out of Ethiopia. Oh, that's exciting. I was aware of their opals, and that um, they kind of look like jelly opals, don't they? Well, some of them look just like Australian, too, you know. But, yeah, they're higher transparency and... So you can facet a lot of them, which is really what sells the best. The faceted stones have been the best. Most of them are not as clear as this material I'm talking about now, but they're clear enough that the faceting adds some something to them. And not only do you get a little brilliance, those facets reflect a deep red color. So you get some color that's not involved with the... Uh, with the play of color that you see in opal, it's actually a reflected a reflection of the body color. It doesn't the body color doesn't look red, but it does reflect a bright red. So it's a, it makes a different stone, and those have sold real well. Okay. And some look like Australian. You wouldn't know the difference, other than if you put a wet finger to them, they'd stick to your finger. But because they are hydrophane, so they do absorb water. So it's it's an issue with them, and it's also a benefit mm-hmm. know, because Ethiopian opal do not craze. You know, Australian opal, that's their biggest fear is the opals craze, and you can have an opal for 30 years, and and you can get it in the sun or something in a window, and, and it can craze after that long a time. But Ethiopian opal, for my experience, they do not craze. I have seen sometimes they'll yellow it yes okay what causes them to do that idea sometimes it's uh, i'm thinking it's the chemicals people are around you know you don't want to spray them with your hairspray you don't want to put perfume on them um, because they absorb everything okay i've seen come back to me with issues and i can see the oil in them you know so they've got uh, oils on them 
So you do have to be careful what you get on them. Other than that, they're the toughest opal on the planet. Okay, that's good to know because I have seen opals, um, the hydrophane, and they're clear-ish, but then they do they do yellow. But the play of color is still there. Um, that's that's good to understand that they're not going to craze and break like the Australian opals. Yeah, so all opals have problems, and you know that turning colors is one of the problems with the with the willow. And I thought about sending some out to GIA and that have changed colors, see if they could see what the difference is. You know, one of these days I'll do it. Next one that comes back and see if they can do any tests and trying to determine what it is. Is it a is it a chemical thing or is it just a natural characteristic? You know, a lot of the material is that yellowish, orangish, and I've seen them change to um, just slightly maybe orangish to looking like fire opal. Oh, wow. Don't know what causes it. That's, yeah, it's still mysterious. Opals are mysterious, but um, it's exciting to know that the Ethiopian opal is so unique. Yeah, and for the problems I've had, I still deal in it, and I just think it's the most beautiful opal on the planet. You know, there's just such a large quantity of really, really nice opal that comes out of there, and just some that just blow me away, you know, at a price that's maybe a third of anything from Australia. Oh, wow. In the past, gosh, probably 10 years or so, colored stones have become more popular as alternatives to diamonds and engagement rings. What would be your best recommendations for colored gemstones and engagement rings? Like, would you recommend a tanzanite or no? Well, I do, yes. I okay. do them right. You know, and, and what I tell people is, you know, in five or ten years, you're going to need to repolish it. You know, it's just you're going to scratch the stone. And and generally, that's all you do to tanzanite, scratch the surface. You don't generally do major damage to them. I don't see that very often. Mm-hmm. But but people do when you wear it every day. You know, just the everyday wear is going to dull the surface. And, and, and I push them for engagement rings because we are the cutters and we can repair them. You know, so it, it's not a major job to repair them. It's not a simple job, but... It is something we can do, and it's something people want. So I'm here to satisfy that need for their want and hopefully take care of, you know, any issues they have down the line. You know, there are harder stones that are better. Of course, sapphires and rubies and morganites, all the barrels are are definitely more durable. Um, Tanzanite is much like amethyst and garnets and tourmalines. You know, and we wear those in rings all the time, but you just got to understand that somewhere down the line you're going to need a repair. Okay. That's good to know because I think that stops people in their tracks when they think a gemstone is going to be typically too soft for a daily wear ring like an engagement ring. That's really good to know that that, you know, that quote-unquote insurance policy is there that they can have the stone repolished and put it back in the ring. So not it's just a surficial polish. It doesn't really remove any of the weight or shape of the stone. Yeah, well, it depends how much the damage is. But, you know, yeah. it's surprising how fix a stone and it'll weigh more than when I started. Not possible. <laughs> you know, or it comes out the same weight, you know. But if you have to do a whole crown and, 
it's a two carat stone to start with. Maybe you're a carat ninety when when you finish it. You know, okay. and and one they want to be sure they do is buy a stone that's got enough crown that you can repair it. Because if you look at a lot of tanzanites, the the crown is very flat. The top portion of the stone, that portion above the the largest outer part above the girdle as we know it. The crown's the top part of the stone that you view. And if it is very flat to start with, the only thing I can do to fix it is I have to cut it a little bit smaller. So that's something you want to keep in mind that you want some height to the top part of that stone. So I have to work with because a lot of tanzanites you look at a lot of stuff a lot of stuff cut in india it's amazing how flat the crown is i mean it's it's 10 percent of the stone is crown and it should be 20 25 percent of it so they just need to buy something with a little crown and then you can repair it several times without without affecting the size of the stone okay that's good to know i wouldn't have known that um, that's really good advice. And then for people who have damaged stones, can they send them to you for repair? At this time, unfortunately not, you know, because okay. I'm the only cutter here. I had another cutter, but, but she's retired. And uh, so at this time until, yeah, at this time, yeah, I have no time. I have 100 pieces of rough sitting in my safe to cut, including all those appetites. <laughs> 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 oh. and, you know, and there's not a whole lot of reward to recutting a stone. You know, the reward is cutting something from the start. You know, it's like like the artist. You know, when you're done, you just get to see this thing you created, and it's an exciting moment. That's true. I can I can understand that, and certainly no excitement. No excitement in recutting. <laughs> no. Recutting. Yeah. A lot of stones could be recut, and you can create something beautiful out of a stone that's not very pretty, but the repairs are, you know, that's boring and no fun for, for <laughs> better, unnecessary business. Right, right. But I'm busy enough, thanks. Yeah, I can, I I can only I could, imagine. I, I do need to find people to recommend too because people do ask me all the time and I hate just saying no but that's currently my answer I mean I've had 40 years of just enjoying what I do you know being able to go to the country of origin buy stones and bring it back here and create something out of it you know we after I'm done cutting it we still have the excitement of producing a piece and seeing a finished piece of jewelry out of what we've done Oh, that's that's really fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Steve, for taking oh, time out of your day. And I can't wait to share um, some of these pictures. Be interested and see what you do. Thank you. I'm looking forward yeah. to sharing your story and, of course, your gemstones. They're spectacular. Okay. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Steve. I look forward to meeting you someday. I'll have to try to um, make it to the Chicago area sometime and stop in. I would yeah. I would like to meet you. As much as you're in it, you should be in Tucson every year. Yes, I'm definitely going. Out there. So we're out there for two weeks. So, you know, if you get a chance, we'll meet. I'd love that. I'll be there in February. So that's... Um, just let me in and, you know, we, we go early and leave early, but we're at least there for a few days of AGTA. We get out there real early, just trying to catch all the foreign dealers coming in and... 
as the early bird catches the worm. Yes. All right. I look forward to seeing you in February then. Okay. Sounds good. All right. I will be in touch when I publish this, which will probably be in a couple of weeks. Okay. Cool. All right. All right. Appreciate the opportunity. You're welcome. Thank you. All right. Take care. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. I hope you enjoyed hearing about Steve Moriarty's gem adventures and learning about his family's business. If you want to learn more about Moriarty's gem arts, as well as more gems, visit moregems.com. You can also find those videos that we were talking about where he instructs for gemstone faceting on YouTube, and that's under more gems as well. And his Tanzanite jewelry is out of this world, which you can find on tanzanitejewelry.com. Also, be sure to check out the coordinating blog post on jewelrynavigator.com where I'll be sharing some of these amazing images of the gemstones that we talked about as well as a couple of the YouTube videos. Stay tuned for more jewelry and adventures on Jewelry Navigator podcast, and I will see you next time. Until then, cross-check your sparkle. Bye-bye.